kind of related to the whole idea of apologetics. I heard this discussion recently where, where they were claiming that apologetics was essentially intellectual flexing and that ultimately it's, it's just preaching the gospel that will convince people. So, the, so I guess that brings up the question, what is the purpose of apologetics? Okay. Yeah, um... Now I'm, I'm reminded of the, in the apologetics group. There's always this guy, one of my fellow admin named Ricky. He always says, "Hey, go search a group already." Right? What I'm, I'm making it as a joke to say, um, I think it's good to review the first session, um, the outlines. Um, but the purpose of apologetics is not just only to convince someone to know. Sometimes it's actually to keep their mouth shut. It's to let them know, "Hey, you're also foolish, also as well." Um, uh, for the example of that, I think, is uh, Jesus. If you guys look with me in Luke 20, verses 1 and 8, I do want to eventually get here. Um, in the end of this, I want to actually, in this series, not just be theoretical, but I think we can learn something in Luke chapter 20 with Jesus' tactics of handling unbelief. If you guys remember, like, they questioned him, like, what authority do you do these things in verses 2 when they confronted him? And what Jesus did, actually, in Luke 19 earlier, is he cleared the temple. And the religious leaders are going to be really upset because you went after what? Their money maker, okay, um, and then he didn't answer the question right away. Um, actually, what he has authority comes from God. How do we know it comes from God? One of the proof is John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist say that he's the one, but then Jesus didn't give evidence just like that in a neutral fashion. He asked them the question, like, "Hey, the authority of John the Baptist, who's it from? Is it from God or from man?" Notice he gives a disjunction of an argument. Right, and it's a question about authority, like about authority. So, in some sense, this is actually technically in philosophy, what Jesus is doing is what is called a polar argument, a polar argument of just saying, okay, let's gonna take something to be the most extreme, and is it possible? Okay, um, I th my view, the way I look at, it, I don't know a lot of philosophers call it this way. I actually think a subset of polar arguments is what is called transcendental arguments, which is what presuppositional apologetics use. Um, but that's another story, another time. But here, we see here what's going on here is right away when they said they don't know, um, you know, their answer is they don't know, verses 7. And then Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Notice here, Jesus is not trying to convince them to believe them. He's also just at times to keep their mouth shut, to say, hey, you have no basis of any foundation also as well. Okay, so I think there is multiple purposes. Um, I don't think apologetics is only intellectual flexing, um, but I also think to present an apologetics that is intellectually weak is also doesn't do service to God also as well. Um, also as well. Again, there could become a problem when you think it's only about intellectual prowess, right? We all agree with that. There needs to be preaching of the gospel. It must be spiritual. But then to also say it's nothing at all uh, intellectual um, capability within. I also don't know if it glorifies God where God wants us to love God with all our heart, my, love God with all our heart, mind, mind, and soul or volition. Also as well. Um, did that answer your question, sort of, Ben? If you have further questions, follow up. Yeah, basically, I think that. Yeah. Okay. I recommend to revisit the the points um, of that first session where I think I went over. I think it is an exhaustive listing of the biblical reasons for apologetics. Okay. Okay. Any other questions? So. Um... I, I'm actually kind of wondering, like, um, before the apologetics uh, thing in, in general, like, um, when do, um, I guess, humans exactly have uh, the philosophy of human center before God sent? And, and why, why did it change that? Yeah. Um, let me reconstruct your question. Uh, Chris, is this your question? When did man-centered philosophy begin and why did it begin? Yes. Okay, very good. I actually think we could know when it began. I actually think it began in Genesis 3. Um, if you guys could turn with me real quick in Genesis 3. You know, everything we must always view through the lens of God's, right, through God's eyes, okay? Um, and we must be very careful of our subjective interpretation. Um, in Genesis 3, I actually think we see the introduction. You know, God says everything was good, um, but also God gave rules, Okay, so you see that I think creation always testifies there's God. But God, there was never a point that God made something that he never have verbal, propositional statements about reality. That is God's word spoke. Because in the very beginning, I mean, the world was created by God's word, right? 
And secondly, also as well, when man lived, Adam and Eve lived in the garden, God's word was very clear what the rules and everything were. And where you see it began, I think, is when you look with me, uh, verses 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delight to the eyes, so the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took it from its fruit and ate, and she also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, verses 6, it's a narrative telling what she thinks. She thought all of a sudden, it was like, okay, this will make me wise. But we already know God's word says what? No, it will make you die, which is very unwise, right? Like, it would not be wise if you suddenly ate poison, right? You would say that's not the epitome of wisdom at all. So I think what we see here is the temptation first began is when Satan tempts is the question. Satan, notice, he doesn't outright says God's word is false. He begins with a question of doubt, saying, hey, did God really say? Before he later then becomes dogmatic and say, you know, you will surely not die in verses 4. So I think where you see the beginning of that is actually in, in Genesis 3. Um, I think the philosopher that really first really done this a good job of applying Genesis 3 to critique even saying about unbelievable philosophy is actually Cornelius Van Til. So if you guys ever read anything by him, he's the first one to say, hey, we cannot go by man-centered reason. We must always need to also interpret it in light of God's word. And that's actually f uh, wisdom. But anything that begins... Um, in another foundation is like sh um, shaking sand, right? It's, you know, building foundation on sand and you're going to have a lot of philosophical um, and moral problem that will flow. Okay. Thank you for asking that question, Chris. If you have follow-up, uh, James, you had a question? James, I don't know if you're speaking and we're not hearing you. Okay, let me read this. Uh, I think you have babies to watch, or your son to watch. Which of the Lord's attributes would be helpful to illustrate why his authority can be used to define ethics, uh, metaphysics, and epistemology? Um, very good question. So you guys understand James' question? Let me repeat this again. Which of the Lord's attributes would be helpful to illustrate why his authority can be used to define metaf ethics, metaphysics, uh, and epistemology. Like, why does God has authority to speak of without those three areas? Metaphysics, again, is view of reality. Ethics is what you should or should not do, like rules um, or norms. And then the other one is also uh, epistemology. Like, how do you know what you know? Like, God says things like the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Um, I think, um, man, there's a good book. Um, he's a Westminster graduate. He actually argues from various attributes. I, I think. My view is we need all of God's attributes, but some of them seems to be more obvious right away. I think um, the fact that God is holy, for instance, is one. Um, he's made everything holy, um, and He's also holy. Um, and therefore, in light of that, there's a sense where part of Him being holy, I think, comes with a sense of authority right away. I think another one is also, this one is really big, that's often in apologetics, is the fact that God's creator. Right? If I made a hammer, and I gave an instruction how to, uh, what to do with it because I invented something, then my right as a creator would, would rule what that object is, right? The cre creation that I have. So in the same creaturely um, analogy, greater reality is God as creator. If God created all the world, he has something to say about what is the view of reality, what is the view of how we know, because he built our faculty um, for us to be able to, to know things. Um, he's made the laws of logic and also he's made reality and in light of the sinfulness of the world he also says what's a corrective solution so I think those are some of the attributes um, some of the other guys have also taken other attributes and really ran with it also as well um, to develop um, one of them would be I don't know if we'll ever go through this for our series um, is even the Trinity that the fact that even um, Government needs a trinity in a sense of the one and the many. Um, there's a guy named Rushduni that really took it. And I think, James, you read a bit of Rushduni, uh, uh, Van Til and the Limit of Reason in his book. But he's really taken that in a book called The One and the Many with its political application. Because there's always this uh, trial that we have, um, like, is individual most important or society? But then both could be, what, um, tyrannical in of itself. Right? We know there's one dictator that could be very tyrannical of everyone, but then there could also be the tyranny of the majority. So where do we have the one and the many? And I think the greatest model is the Trinity. 
the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, these three cohere. And then from the original archetype, then we mimic that. Um, but that's another sermon, another time. Okay. Um, uh, next questions? touched on um, circular reasoning a little bit how there's a I mean there's two types of circular reason and um, I had this thought and I wanted to see kind of on what you what you have I mean you say like you know God exists because he's revealed himself in his word you know that's circle so what so, so what if somebody says you know well, I have this God that I worship, and He exists, and he, you know they'll pull out the documents that it says right here, you know that He exists. Um, what, what what difference when we say God exists and we have we use the Bible as a standard? What difference would that be if somebody said the same exact thing about you know their God, you know their false God, essentially? Okay, um, yeah, that's a good question. Let me rephrase this for everyone. Um, uh, Jesus makes a really good point of an objection that often is brought up against the kind of apologetics that I, I'm doing, right? Um, or, or what we we would do um, is what happened if someone has say, hey, you know, um, I also have what you have for the foundation for everything. I have this writing that's from my deity that explains everything else, and therefore, how do we? Um, what do we? You know, um, does that then pose a challenge to Christianity? Um, by the way, Jesus, are you are you in this instance that you're mentioning? Are you actually talking about real life religions, or you're saying what happens if an atheist brings this up as an objection to what we're doing? Um, I, I would that. say probably just a typical religion. I usually an atheist is not going to mention that they have gods that they worship in. Yeah. So they maybe some maybe that's a maybe just like a Muslim or a Buddhist or. Yeah. Okay. Or Mormon, maybe Mormon in this context, they think, you know, it's been revealed to us that, you know, the Book of Mormon's true. Yeah. It says it right here. Why don't, why, why don't you believe that, you know? Yeah. Okay. That's a very good question. So to be, uh, back up with um, this, if we were, um, if you guys were even to look at last week's session, um, this is where I think um, it's important to go to the content. After they say this, okay, my uh, religious document, I would ask, okay, what does it tell us? Tell me what does it tell us? And in terms of real world religion, I actually think the major religion actually destroys oftentimes the foundation for um, uh, for explaining human uh, experiences. I think I gave last week the example of even like Hinduism saying that there's everything is an illusion. That's from their Apishalans, uh, their the Vedas also as well. Okay, um, uh, uh, you know they're wrestling with that. Okay, um, and then I think. The other example is also, I think, even about Buddhism. Now, Buddhism is kind of harder in the sense that their scripture follows hundreds of years after um, Siddhartha's life. Um, okay, uh, hundreds, and actually, uh, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism already splinted three major, the different school, the Mahayana, the Theravadas, um, even before there was any agreement upon scripture. So I'll do it by case by case basis with that. Um, but even then, I think their belief of the lack of soul, I would also say, hey, you cannot even have any responsibility. Uh, and and um, this is recognized in their literature that if there's no Atman, there's no soul uh, to go from one thing to another, then how do we then say, hey, you're responsible, you're living out the bad karma from before. Okay, so I think there's that contradiction that destroys human responsibility and the problem of evil. Now, let me back this up as it says this. I often hear atheists will bring this up and say, well, you know, um, I was actually, um, I just did a, a thing with Revealed Apologetics, the podcast. Um, some of you guys, um, I'll probably have to send this out. I think uh, Ben and Jesus has seen it. Um, and I remember I just saw yesterday there was an atheist that critiqued it. And he was just like getting a paper and says, here, let me write it out. This is my scripture, huh? And I would actually say to the atheist, um, when the atheist brings this up a hypothetical, my response is twofold. My response is twofold. Number one, I just want to make the uh, observation that their trajectory to, um, in order to be refute Christianity, notice they have to make a counterfeit. 
they have to make something not on their own term. They're making something that's becoming more and more of a counterfeit of Christianity to try to defeat me. And secondly, if they bring up a hypothetical, I think it also is irrational. Again, Greg Bonson mentioned uh, a very good, Greg Bonson is an apologist. He gave a really good analogy. If someone goes, to, let's just say Kobe Bryant was still alive and he was like the best whatever. Um, let's just say there's, um, let's just say, I don't know what's the best uh, b- basketball team, right? And someone was really jealous at that basketball team. Let's just say it's the Lakers is the best. I don't know. Like, I'm talking about metrics, the best score, and everything else. And someone goes over to them and says, well, you say this is the best team, but what if in the future there's some other team that could be better than your team and will beat you? Now, most people would kind of laugh and say, okay, well, you could bring up all these hypothetical. Maybe in the future there is. I don't know about. But at the same time right now, it doesn't remove the fact that this is the best account for, for what's the best game. So I think in the same way that when someone brings up a hypothetical, it's just exactly that. It's a hypothetical, right? You could just say, you know what, if you're the best scoring uh, team, you, uh, if you're in high school or college and you're the best guy that, that does best in your school, right? If someone says, oh, someone could do better than you, what if some, well, yeah, you could. But at the same time, you're not dealing with the concreteness of what is here before us um, with that, okay? Um, so with Islam, I do want to devote a section to that, Um uh, I do want to deal with it, but just in case I don't get to this, the way I critique Islam is this: uh, Islam has a lot of scripture. Uh, question: They have scripture called the Quran, and in the Quran, um, they mention a lot of God's attributes. Um, and they would say, "Hey, you know what? God is also creator. Therefore, He created everything, including the laws of logic." But then the way I would do to critique is, I would say, "What does the Quran says about the Bible? What does the Quran says about the Bible? The Quran actually teaches that if you." The Bible is not corrupted. Now, Muslims today say that the Bible has been corrupted. But the Quran's teaching actually is that the Bible is authentic and you should listen to that. So I would often say, okay, I will evangelize them. And then once they say, no, 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 the Quran says, then I'll say, no, the, the Quran says you must listen to me. Well, well it can co- co- uh, contradict the Quran. So I think Muhammad in his lifetime, he did not actually know the Bible for himself. Um, so that's why he thought the Bible actually agrees. So when the scripture, the Quran was written, he says everything in the Bible is accurate. But he does say there's misinterpretation, but he'll say the words and everything is accurate. And therefore, I would actually say, okay, if there's a contradiction, the problem is not with my scripture, is with yours. So the Muslims, in Surah, one, Surah means chapter 114 and 112, they actually have a misunderstanding of the Trinity. They actually thought the Trinity is um, God the Father, Mary, and uh, um and Jesus. But that's not the Christian conception. The Christian conception is what? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. So when you have that contradiction, then you would say, okay, it's not my problem. Your problem, your epistemology says that God's, the, the Gospels, what they call the Injil in Arabic, and also the, the Torah, the, the, you know, the, the, the book of Moses, are things you should abide by. That it never changes. And therefore, I would say the problem then is with your um, theology. If there's a contradiction, it's with you, not with with that, with my Christian <coughs> beliefs. I'm gonna go over this, hopefully, Lord willing, in a few months from now or weeks from now. Okay. Um, if there's follow up question, just wait uh, for this until. Let me open this up now. For thank you, good question, Jesus. Anyone else? Any questions? I hope I didn't lose anyone. I'm trying not to. I, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, when you break this subject down to the level of teaching it to your kids, how do you do that? And what examples from the Bible do you use? Um, you know, people that Jesus actually knew. I know that's kind of a broad question. Yeah, I'm thinking of maybe... The man who testified um, to the Pharisees um, about this, and you know, well, this man—I don't know where this man—but he made me see. I was blind, but now I see. So I guess um, how the question is: um, How do you break the subject down um, in simple enough terms that uh, a young person, a child, could understand? Yeah, that's the ever-present challenge. Um, so practically, what I try to do is, um, I actually, um, so this is what we're doing. 
Um, I haven't really gone really in depth with apologetics with them. Um, but I, we are actually going over homeschooling um, a course through logic. But while we're going through that, um, we're right now go, covering various logical... What are we going over? What did we go over today? Logical fallacies, right? Like wrong way of thinking or incorrect uh, way categories of thinking. So when we go over that, then I'll bring up like, hey, these are what sometimes real people that are non-believers would, would object towards Christianity. And then um, uh, I find that sometimes helpful. Maybe it's not like a whole... I'm not... so. Please don't think... So next week, we're going to go over the laws of logic, how that proves God's existence. Uh, don't think that at home, I'm telling my daughters, hey, let's sit down and we'll talk about Stroud and his, what is transcendental. Um, but I do think we try to make it... Um, what I find helpful, actually, is um, is later on, I do really want to go over Luke 20. I actually think Luke 20, the way Jesus handles his opponents are things that we could all look at. And even kids, when they see it, oh yeah, that kind of makes sense how he deals with that. Um, I guess that's a shortcut answer to say, wait for for when we go over um, some of those things. I also think sometimes these are good examples from everyday life. I try to have as many analogies as possible. So if you go to the blog, Veritas Domain, um, I have a lot of analogies of apologies. I think right now, today, I posted another one like 78 there is so far. Those are over the last 10 years. Every time I think there's a great analogy. I also think, for example, like how I teach about you never leave your worldview. You'd always begin with it. One example I think the kids could relate to is I also say like, let's just say you go with me with Dada to evangelize at Pasadena City College. And someone comes up to us and say, hey, I don't believe God exists. Please don't be, please don't even assume God exists in the Bible and prove it to me. And I'll tell them, I'll give the examples like, wait, um, if someone goes up to you, Rebecca, Abigail, Hannah, and say to you, I don't believe you have a mom. Your mom don't exist. What would you guys do? What, my Rebe- Rebecca gave this face. Yeah, it, yeah. you would ask, how do you even know? So my daughters made this face like, what? Right? Now, they're going to talk about whether or not it's reasonable or not, but you never give up the fact that you really do know. You don't want to play schizophrenic. So I think there's everyday things. I try as much. I, I know sometimes in our lesson we've gone over, there's a lot of big terms. But in my practical evangelism, I try as much as possible to give a lot of analogies. Um, and I, I really do spend a lot of time staying up at night trying to sometimes think, how could I make this as understandable as possible? Like things like the circuit board or just, you know, uh, various things. So um, I think analogies helps um, makes it even the most biggest opponent kind of step in the worldview and then they kind of also sometimes even laugh at what you're trying to get the point with. Um, so that's what I try as much as possible to do. By the way, I don't think that's original. I think Jesus did that. He's the master of giving parables to make people step in their worldview and make <coughs> them see how foolish something is with that. Um, is that somewhat a little bit helpful, Mrs. Burton? Okay. Okay, and then Josh says, um, will Christian Chinese Communist Party stop persecuting Christians in the future? I have this feeling probably not. I don't think there's ever been any communist government that had any track record that's really good and not persecuting. They might stop for a little bit, but they don't. I think inherent within a Marxist worldview um, is they think religion is what Marx says, the opiate of the mass. Um I actually think the um, this is a little side conversation. Hopefully, I won't get into this much, um, unless you guys really want us to go over like social justice and woke stuff. I actually think Marxism has morphed from the first generation. Um, original Marxism don't even believe you should use money, but Soviet Marxism changed because they did that for a few years, and that result in mass famine and starvation. Because money is actually a good calculus of how many thi- of 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 supply and demand right like for instance if you have a shortage of gas how do we know right away that i shouldn't spend gas like crazy you raise the costs and that signals to me whoa okay it's gonna hit my limited resource and therefore so there's a signal um aspect with money but marxism has changed uh, over time there's never been an orthodox marxist over time and the the generation afterward in the 60s onward there's something called cultural marxism um but sometimes people say oh conservative make that up uh, maybe the right word is Gramsci um, from a guy named Gramsci from uh, he's a second or third generation Marxist from Italy uh, Antonio Gramsci and that's a lot about 
I think what I think happened is Marxism start mimicking religion by talking about culture, influencing culture, influencing mass media, and everything else, like using the very tools um, of culture to subvert. And it's about the culture rather than just pure revolution and, and violence and, and, and plain um, economic only, a crude economic only. So I don't think it would be any time. If there's any peace, it's actually tactical or they don't really believe it uh, anymore. Okay. Okay, any other questions? I have a question. Mm -hmm. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear. Go ahead. Okay, cool. Um, so, you know how in evil and the problem atheism, we talked about how um, if you go by like proving that evil versus good is like based off of subjectiveness, that doesn't work because people will change in their opinions over time. And so that's like, points us more towards God. But what do you say to people, though, who have the argument that, well, people's interpretations of God in the Bible has also changed over time? Yeah. Um, I think my response would be twofold. Number one, there is a truth that people's view of the Bible, do like just descriptively, just as a matter of fact, people's view do change. Um, over time, and I, I think sometimes people's interpretation of the Bible gets in, refined to be more biblical, um, to be more clear. I think in church history, there's always different era where certain doctrines of Scripture becomes more crystal clear. Um, not that it's totally invented, but it, maybe it was stated before, but now in this time period, it's more clear. What, for instance, I think the example is the gospel. The gospel, you could always read the early church, Clement of Rome, um, within the first century. They have an understanding that we're always saved by grace alone through faith alone. But of course, the Catholic church over time also muddled that water. And it take Luther to clarify. So I want to just make that observation that there is that. But secondly, I also don't think that's totally, like nothing's totally new too. Because you would always find somewhere in church history, there's this idea in incipient form, in seed form, um, with the and people in the church that believe that. Um, secondly, I also think while that is true, I also think ultimately with the case of the people that is interpreting the Bible, there would also we would also say the goal is always why we're studying so hard to interpret the Bible is we want to actually be faithful to what God says. So the ultimate ruler still is not the individuals and or sociologically a group of churches and denomination. It's still the word of God, the Bible itself. That is the ultimate standard. So if there's any correction, um, this is also based upon in what we said last time. I also refuted that a right and wrong cannot be based upon individuals. So that means even groups of people could be wrong, right? In society, like the Nazis or or, or certain past uh, sin with every society, even American society, right? But also in light of that, also I would also say that's true of even believers, in different times, people could be right about some things and wrong about some things. So if there's a change in mores, is because hopefully there's a trajectory that we're heading towards more that are fit, uh, biblical. And then to resolve whether or not it's biblical, it's going to be an exegetical question. That is, it's going to involve questions about interpretation of the text with grammar, syntax, um, context, literary forms, that kind of thing. Um so I guess, let me summarize my answer to make this short, is it is true that people sometimes do change, and sometimes that's also correction. Um, and also, secondly, the ultimate standard is the Bible. Um, just with this, if you're interested in this discussion, there's a book called Protestantism. Um, it's written by a historian. He's, it's, uh, I cannot remember the name. I'll have to send it later on. I reviewed it on um, Veritas Domain on, on the blog. Um, this guy, historian, made a very compelling argument, and this is not like a quack. This is a guy that's a New York Times bestseller. In his book, Protestantism, he talks about how it, the incredible engine that brings about progress in the West is actually the fact of sola scriptura, 
that is by God's word. And he goes through these really compelling cases. He looks at even things like, for instance, like in Africa uh, uh, with apartheid, right? With even American context with slavery. That even though these guys could be so committed racist or whatever else, but it's because of scripture. When they're forced with scripture, they have to say it is so painful, but yet we still go by scripture. So you see entire denominations even eventually capitulate and say this is what the biblical data is with that and i i think he makes a very i mean it's a very um it looks at sin of within protestantism very frankly he's not batting an eye he's not trying to do this but then he also makes this compelling case that in the end he's documented historically what makes these denominations change in the end was because they saw the light of scripture so i actually think this argument of the changes actually reinforce how much the authority of scripture is so important that brings about changes Versus just saying, okay, the standard is only a different group sociologically. Any other questions? Okay, Leanne, we'll f follow up your question after the next one then. Okay. Anyone else with a question? You had a question, Abigail? Okay. Also, Rebecca, Abigail, Hannah, if you guys have a question. Okay, Jesus says, uh, I have another one when it comes time. Okay, uh, Jesus, why don't you just say it right now real quick, and then we'll go next to uh, Leanne. Hopefully it won't be a long answer for me. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> you brought up something that I've dealt with in the past that was pretty interesting. You kind of touched on it, and it was the idea of uh, this thing called cultural subjectivity. So an example I'll give is like, I think, you know, one example someone gave me was that in China, like, it's, you know, very rude to tip your waitress. And, um, you know, if you tip your waitress, you're being like a jerk or whatever. I don't know if that's true, but I've given that example before. And what what would be something like that? What would So, like, a cultural, I don't know if it's moralistic, if it's moral or not, to, versus, like, a principled objectivity of morality what would be like some of the connections like how you deal with if that makes sense yeah if you're following what i'm saying yeah um every culture have their mores that i would even say some of them don't necessarily go against god's word but there's some specific reason why that goes or i think the one i like to always give is about left hand right in the middle east man um in the middle east i do not shake people with left hand because that's very offensive right um, in the Middle East, uh, when we were in the Marines, we never, when there's civilians around, you know how we are, sit down. We make sure our feet does not sow our soles because it's actually very offensive um, to them. So these things, I, sometimes there's reasons for that because in that culture, in some culture, when you don't have toilet paper, the left hand's function was to have many things that are very dirty, including bodily function. So when you understand sometimes asking the deeper question, uh, number one is asking why do they have that? And then number two from that is also you see there's a principle. That pr greater principle is still uh, loving others, right? You want to be thoughtful. You don't want to have a dirty hand from wiping your bottom and then, hey, 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 let me shake hand, right? So there's a principle of love that often drives cultural stuff. Um, so then you say, okay, why would I not show respect uh, for that? Thing. Another one is, for instance, even like, um, you know, like tying left over right or right over left, you know, your shoes or whatever else. And people wear belts certain ways, right? Um, like white socks or, or not. Um, those things, I think, is um, they're saying uh, oh, this is the way you present their best. So in any culture, why would you not want to present the best when you're saying something that's serious? So that's what I often would, would see that. Um, it's not totally relative. There's still a sense there's some greater command that's driving this thoughtfulness and loving your neighbor that's driving us why we as christian respect that when we go to another culture and number two sometimes explains there's something going on there that they have to um add to to make sure things of of, of loving others would be best appropriate in that specific geographical cultural setting um with that um at this time let me get to leanne if you had a question um and then we'll open the floor again for anyone else. Leanne, go ahead and ask your question. Yeah, so my follow-up is um, 
You said your answer to my previous question was that over time we're getting closer to like an accurate understanding of the Bible or interpretations. One of my friends had asked me in the past, wouldn't the earliest Christians be the ones with the most accurate interpretation since they were the ones who were closest to Jesus and received Jesus' teachings directly? So isn't it the opposite where over time our interpretation becomes more and more incorrect? Yeah, so you asked a very good question. Um, I would say the answer actually is both. If you guys could turn with me real quick to Jude 3. Um, Jude 3 uh, gives us this principle that what is new, what is true cannot be totally new. And what is totally new cannot be true. Jude 3 says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Once for all. So it says here that it was already handed down uh, with that. So the way in proving doctrines in, 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 um, in doctrinal dispute, let's just say someone, I'll give a good example, is when the Catholic Church, what broke Protestantism, remembers the discussion about are we justified by faith alone? Like we, Catholics will say we're saved by grace alone, but how do you access that grace? Is it by doing good works or, 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 or go through the church as mayor, or is it by faith alone, right? So when they argue back in the day, and you'll read, if you read Martin Luther yourself and everything else, they argue twofold. They'll say, let's go back to the scripture. Let's pay attention to the grammar, the Hebrew. We'll read Romans, we'll read Galatians. But on top of that, also as well, they'll also say, do we see this idea taught in church history? And I would say yes. The interpretation that Luther had, that we hold to, is not made up by Luther, for the first time, there was a guy in the first century named Clement of Rome, one of the early ones. So there's two full things they're usually doing in proving doctrine is we show from scripture and then also saying, hey, in the early, what they call the first 300 years, the patristics or what they call as anti-Nicene father. Anti is a Latin word before Nicaea is Council of Nicaea 325. Those early fathers, did they believe these beliefs also as well? Okay. Now they could unpack and explain more over time, right? Like the Trinity, the word one being, three person came later on. But the Bible already taught there's this oneness of God and there's a threeness of that. But those terms later is to make it not confusing and say, hey, there's one person and three person. And it's like, wait, wait, one person, three person. Who are we talking about? God, the whole be- wholeness of God, or, or just one of those um, three? Does that make sense? So there is a clarity. Um, of that, but also the the seed of that is the most earliest is is in the early church too. Is that helpful, Leon? Okay. Um, I guess I'm so confused. So you're saying though that over time our interpretation is also getting more accurate because we're pulling from before. It's not like out of nowhere. Yeah, we're we're going more to the early church, and we're going closer to the scripture because over time there's all these uh, presuppositions we might have, or we haven't really thought about it. But there might be clarity of more better language to uh, to be even more precise. But we're going back to the early church and to the scriptures. Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, I saw James Whitaker. Was it? Riz? Okay, James. Would you personally, let me read this question, would you personally find that the studying of apologetics can act as a form of worship and even to uncover hope in a hard world? Well, that's a good question. Um, he asked a question, is it practical, like, would it, is it helpful to worship God and actually to give hope in a hard world? Um, I do know there's some people that talk about the dry spells of studying apologetics. Um, I had the dry spell was when I was a younger Christian when it was just all intellectual and the kind of apologetics I engage in is not presuppositional where you always begin with God's word first but for me it is actually to me to be honest with you it actually boosts my faith a lot especially um, but some areas might be bear more fruit to help us with a hard world more than others like for instance if you're going through suffering it might be very hard and I've been spending the last three weeks reading art about the nature of logic it might not be the time when you're going through suffering to then say oh I wonder what is the modal nature uh, of modality for for logic that's probably not going to give you as close of a spiritual buzz close to god but i think for instance the study of messianic prophecies would be much more 
But even with something as abstract as logic, um, it makes me, I'm so amazed. Like how could logic be something in our mind that also cohere out in the world? And how, how is it that everything then, almost an irreducible complexity that it all kind of cohere? Like logic applies in the real world, but it's also in our mind. And it also it just happens to work, and yet it's also something that's rules. It's not just only things we see manifest in different instances, like laws of non-contradiction, identity, but also that it actually are rules that we say, okay, this is something that is not just reality. It's there's a prescriptiveness, which is so amazing to me, um, and it always it always makes me worship God with those aspects. So I, I would say it does help. Um, and even my brothers and sisters, even when we go through some of these things, if you feel like, oh, Jimmy. Some of these words is just hard. I would actually encourage you to go deeper dive to study because it actually does boost my faith a lot. Um, and I think from the apologetics group that I lead in, in uh, some of you guys are in it in Facebook. Um, we're approaching, I think, seven, eight thousand. And there's testimonies of guys that say, "Hey, to study holding to the Bible firmly and to study these things together actually boosts my faith a lot uh, with that and helps me with my trials and tribulations." Okay, um, anyone else with questions? I just want to ask if there's anyone else that haven't asked questions first, if you might have a question. We still have 15 minutes. James put something in the chat. I don't know if you already... Okay. Um, yeah, and James, I did address. Caleb. Okay. Caleb's question is an ethics class I'm currently taking. Ooh, okay. We went over divine command theory, um, that God defines what is right and wrong. We also went over... it. He, okay. I can't pronounce this dilemma. Is something morally good because God commands it, or does God command it because it's morally good? Um, in looking online, I see other attacks on the theory, but few defenses. Is this simply because it's a core tenet of our faith and is taken for granted? Okay, let me rephrase. Uh, so, if you guys read this, this is the dilemma. So, wow, I did not know you're taking a class right now. The, I cannot pronounce this word. You the e dilemma. It's a dilemma. Yeah. Oh, it was the dilemma. Yeah, I cannot pronounce it. I just only read things. Um, this was brought up in Greek philosophy. I believe it was actually um, Plato that brought it up um, in the Republic, I think. Okay, um, He brings it up, the dilemma is this, like when God comes... So it's an argument about the nature of good. Um, is it dependent upon God or is it not? And the question is raised is, okay, um, if God says it's... Uh, let me read that again. Um uh, it, you know, if it's if God says it's morally good because God simply says it, or does God command it because there's something more like good is more what in philosophy would call more basic or more um, first, more prominent first ahead of time before you could even talk about God. Like, is it is it that the case? And then the dilemma they would bring up is okay. Well, if it's God says it, then it's just arbitrary. Um, it's just simply arbitrary. And then if it's if it's something that God says it. Um, because God's based upon some idea of goodness, then therefore it's not really God that gives us morality. Um, I, I do think it is addressed. Um, I think it's unfortunate that most of the discussion of these are usually in academic literature. Um, just as a further focus, um, if you want a, a much more discussion, um, Caleb, look up a guy named John Frame. John Frame wrote a book called The Doctrine of Christian Life. The Doctrine of Christian Life. That book is actually a thousand pages long. It's a Christian view of ethics, but he deals with a lot of meta-ethics issue, like the philosophy of goodness itself. And I think the solution, the cliff note version that I'm going to say real quick is actually for us as Christian, we would say the nature of God is good. Therefore, he t tells us what is good. So it is, but the nature of God is both a person, it is personal, I mean, and also um it, it, it's also the, the standard that we have also as well. So I actually do not think that dilemma um, poses as big of a problem, even just superficially. Um, I mean, if you want to talk about ethical problems, I think the problem of, you know, atheism can't even account for right or wrong and all these other ism can't even account for that in the first place. This is a discussion about more of the nature of goodness itself, but it's already admitting that. And I think to me, the answer I would say is instead of a dilemma, the answer is, God decrees it because his nature is good. And therefore, he's decreeing um, that. So it's not anything outside of God.
but it's recognizing that norms are something more than just a person, but it needs a person. So the nature, the nature part is, I think, that solves that dilemma. Um, okay, Kaylee? If it needs more f uh, deeper discussion, I think um, read um, John Frame in what is called the Doctrine of Knowledge of God. I think it's probably about 50 bucks, but it is worth everything. That is, to me, you know, going back to uh, the question earlier, James Whitaker, like, does it, the devotional part, I read that as a devotion in 2013. I just read four or five pages every day, every morning. That has helped me think about ethical issue of solving very difficult ethical questions. Like, for instance, when Andrew in China or Nepal ask me, hey, what do we do with these marriage things? And it's just like, whoa, it's all these problems. How do we, I think it's actually very practical in thinking robustly from the foundation up a, a biblical uh, ethics ecosystem. Okay, any other questions? By the way, Caleb, for another free resource, if you go to sermonaudio.com, you, you type in Greg Bonson, and you look for um, his series on uh, ancient philosophy. I think he discusses that in his discussion about Socrates uh, and Plato. Um, so if you just go through that, I think there is a discussion. I think he might even have a whole entire hour devoted to that as an, an additional free resource. Okay, any other questions? Is there anyone else I want to go first before we go to Jesus? I just want to make sure if there's others also as well. Especially those that haven't asked any questions. Okay, uh, I guess the floor is yours, Jesus. Um, yes, I was um, kind of looking over our stuff, and we're, as Christians, we're objective people. So um, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure everybody's familiar with this, but there's this thing called the Pascal Wager. Um, I was wondering... Well, so, you know, it's kind of like, you know, either God exists or he doesn't. I guess that's kind of like the sum of it. Why as Christians can we um, not use something like that? Or, you know, some people say it's not really wise to use it or well, if that kind of makes sense. Why? Why is it not a good reason to use something like that? OK, to back up for everyone, um, he brought up a very good question. Uh, Pascal Wager was from a guy um who's a philosopher or a, a theologian actually too um his argument for uh to the non-believers is say why would you not believe it's better to be safer to believe christianity is true versus it's not so he was just say in light of the cost is hell and, and and you know punishment for sin and then christianity promises a blessing from god and, and he'll be with you with his presence and meaning in life and, and to be forgiven sin why would you not choose this if you don't know it's better to choose that because the blessing of that is better so my so myself as a presuppositionalist um i want to mention that there's a lot of times we do make choices in life that's based upon a cost uh and uh cost and um benefit analysis however i think for me that those things never uh, uh, happen in a vacuum they never happen in a vacuum um uh, and so part of that, I think, why I am reluctant to use that kind of argument is I actually think Christianity actually is true, and we need to focus on its truth. Um, and I think the limitation why I would use a Pascal wager is um, the nature of knowing things. Um, you guys know the definition of, so to back up, the nature of what knowledge is, is just, so it's threefold. Is justified, if you guys could say the word justified. Justified, true, 
beliefs. That's the nature of, of the three um, the three things, the three hallmarks of knowledge. Is it has to be true, right? You can't say you know something that's false. For instance, I cannot say I know I'm half pregnant when that cannot logically happen, and it must be true. It's true, and its belief is something that I put my will into, or volition, or intentionality, in my mind, and say this I'm going to hold as true. And also it involves justified. That is, there's you followed the rules of logic, or you followed, um, you did not break any rules to come to arrive at that. So I think for me, when you just only make a Pascal wager, why I don't use that in apologetics is you only encourage beliefs, but it's not necessarily they're believing it because it's true. Sometimes it's more pragmatic, um, and also, uh, and I think the we need to focus on the justification. Of that, so that's to me um, why I personally do, do not use that. Does that kind of help a bit? I think it actually does not focus. It focuses on a lot of times on the benefits versus you believe this because it's true. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that's really yeah. true. Yeah, I think that the problem is it doesn't treat faith as a as like you're genuine about it. Because if, if that's the reason you believe, I wouldn't think that's a genuine faith. It's more like okay, I'm just going to be safe, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. And also, I think if it's not really grounded, there's a lot of things that's harder as a Christian, right? I mean, going out to the abortion clinic, it's a scary thing. Going out, saying to someone and say, hey, I'm a real believer when they're going to punch you in the face. That's a scary thing. Um, I think in light of that, I, I think we need to really emphasize that it really is true rather than just the pragmatic at that moment. Um, that it might be. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's it doesn't go far enough in, in my view. Okay. Um, anyone else with questions? Okay. In light of we have three minutes left, I'm gonna ask for prayer requests. Um, before actually before this, is, would this be more helpful? Like later on in June, we also have another Q and A. Just I I think maybe. Um, as people get more comfortable, but even more questions could be fielded. Would that be? Give me a thumbs up if you say yes. If sometime in June, this will be helpful. Okay. 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 Um, so tonight, I'm gonna end with asking for the prayer request for Eric. What could we pray for you for? So it's gonna be Eric Kazus and um, Caleb. And Phil. Um, help that I get sleep and then time management. I have a lot of responsibility.